Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air with my co-hosts, Kayla Solomon. Good morning, Kayla. How are you this morning? I'm good, Laurie. Hi, Dominique. How are you? I'm well. Hello, everyone. Hi, so Dominique Simone Levine from the Allies in Recovery website. And today I am honored to let everyone know that we have a guest. We have Dr. Carl Eric Fisher who just came out with his new book called The Urge. Dr. Fisher is an addiction physician and bioethicist. He is an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University's Division of Law, Ethics, and Psychiatry. He also maintains a private practice focusing on addiction. He is the author of the nonfiction book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and several other outlets. He is also the host of Flourishing After Addiction podcast, a deep dive interview series exploring addiction and recovery. Thank you for joining us this morning, Dr. Fisher, which we're now going to start calling you Carl. (laughs) Please, by all means. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. So, Tell us a little bit about about your book, your new book that came out. Just kind of give us an overview of what it's about. Yeah, the the genesis comes out of my own addiction and recovery. When I was in medical training, I had a problem with uh, addiction to alcohol and stimulants. And then once I entered recovery, I still had some questions about like what the history really had to teach us. I really love medicine. I love psychiatry and neuroscience, but... I felt like there was more out there. So I started looking into the history and philosophy of addiction, going back to ancient India, ancient Greece, and just tracing the lives of people who had experienced addiction throughout the years. And it was really for myself, honestly, it was for, it was to help understand my own situation, to help understand my family and to, in a way, make sense of how it made sense for me to think of myself as someone with addiction. Because uh, I had a, a fair bit of resistance at the outset. And also, I think there's just a lot out there. There's a lot of scientific and sociological debate about like, what do we, how do we define it? What is it called? What is this? What is that? And um, the history really helped me with a lot of that, with a lot of those types of questions. Good morning, Carl. It's, it's nice to meet you. And thank you for coming back. You've already been on our podcast once before. We appreciate your time. I love what you've done in this book. I think it's it's a fine-tuned articulation of what, as a society, we're struggling with, which is addiction. And I think you summed it up when you say, and I'm going to read from your book, okay? We must understand that addiction is varied and diverse. It is not that addiction is or is not a brain disease or a social malady or a universal response to suffering. All of these things 
and none of them at the same time, because each level has something to add, but cannot possibly tell the whole story. And I, I love that you took the or out of what is the struggle in the paradigm we call addiction that we believe in today, that that is the convention that we believe the standard issue addiction, and you made it an and. It's not that it's just or only or maybe a brain disease and a social malady and a universal response to suffering. It is all of those things that together we might simply called the need to connect, the need to love, possibly. And that that is not entirely even the whole picture. And that if we're going to flip it, Carl, and ask you to give us a prescription for how then do we address this, which I think is, is somewhat what would interest our families and audience, how do we then take this click in the clog, a, a cog rather, that you've done, I think, in shifting the paradigm from one or the other or the other, which is how we treat addiction in this country, to one that is all of these things and in its totality can't even explain the human behavior need reward system that is inevitably addiction for a lot of us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for picking up on that because that's a that's a theme of the book that means a lot to me. It was one of the central messages to just pause and think about all of the complicated multi-level ways of understanding addiction. What I've seen in my own practice and my own life is that when people are scared, when people are suffering, they want an answer. And that might be an answer about what, what the supposed cause of addiction is or what the treatment of addiction is. And we see that reflected at the social level too, which is why I also looked at the sort of policy questions where you know maybe the answer is this kind of prohibition, or maybe the answer is that kind of treatment. And it's hard to do, but I, I really think to fully address addiction, even at the personal level, even just when it comes up in our own lives, it requires that pause and stepping back and considering how it can sometimes be kind of paradoxical where, you know, yes, of course, addiction has profound physical and biological causes and effects. And also, it occurs at the intersection of all these complicated social forces. So you, you mentioned your listeners and, you know, families. I, my own parents had really bad struggles with alcoholism, which I described a little bit. As I worked on the book that actually went back generations that I didn't even understand, I didn't even know about. And looking really deeply at the causes and all the conditions that fed into their addiction helped me a lot. It helped me a lot in terms of adopting a more compassionate pivot toward them. Because when I was suffering and when I, when, you know, for example, when my mother was dying of end-stage lung cancer from her cigarette addiction, it, it was really difficult for me to see her drinking in a way that undercut her chemo. And well, I, I thought I was trying to help her out in all these different ways. And that was around the time that I started like really working on the book in earnest. And when I really understood the way that like she had faced tremendous deprivation as a child, Growing up in industrialized Newark, where her immigrant parents were on like opposing shifts of the uh, factory assembly line, and that at least in part, a big part of their addiction was for both my parents were, were a legacy of intergenerational trauma and deprivation. 
it helped me to not personalize it so much. It, it was less about like their personal failing or why won't they just pull it together? And that, that's a hard thing. It's like one of those things that's easy to say, but so hard to do. Like as a psychiatrist, I could easily say like, don't personalize it, watch out for shame, watch out for blame, but to like really sit with the reality of all of those causes and conditions just really helped me to inspire some of that compassion. So I think that's just one, one, one thing that comes to mind when you talk about like, what's, what's the point, what's the use? It's so interesting because so much of our working craft is about having compassion and not taking things personally, which is a very slippery slope because the compassion brings your emotions out and this sense of like the larger we're connected. And then how do you keep yourself out of it? So it's like, this is the other person's truth. This is their reality. This is their experience. And it's not about you. It's, and, and so there's, there's connection and there's also distance at the same time when you're not taking it personally. Yeah. I, I love what you're saying, Kayla, because I also think there's huge misunderstanding for family members and friends or allies in that there's like this misunderstanding of what caring and compassion actually is that oftentimes family members think caring and being compassionate and caring towards their loved one is allowing them to be a doormat right and not understanding that actually setting down healthy boundaries and taking care of yourself is caring and compassionate and holding to the um, belief that the individual is capable. That's the message that these types of things, that is caring, compassion, love, is holding to the message that you are capable. You are not your illness. You are capable of being healthy, (laughs) if that makes sense. It totally makes sense to me. One thing that comes to mind is how are all the different ways that pessimism and fatalism has entered into ideas about addiction? And it's such a, a long and tangled thread. And as long as people in history have had problems with substance use or other addictive behavior, some of the earliest examples I found in the book actually were gambling, which I think anybody in the field recognizes can be just as dangerous and life-threatening even. But as long as we've had examples of people struggling with addiction in that way, there's been this thread of of pessimism, fatalism, the notion that people are broken, the notion that people can't do any differently. And that's such a powerful negative stereotype to resist. I think it's so important to recognize the, the possibility for change. I think that addiction is not like an extreme disease that only happens to one little corner of society. That's one thing that the, the history really brought out for me that actually even like a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, medical providers and certainly other thinkers like spiritual thinkers or philosophers thought about addiction as something universal. It was like the universal puzzle of self-control and the way that everybody struggles to make sense with their, make sense of their behaviors and bring their actions in line with their values. That that's, that happens to everyone. And in some ways, like some of the effort to put addiction in a box and make it about like one extremely afflicted corner of society, I think kind of introduces this, this notion of brokenness. It makes some sick people over here. But when we look at the data, like when we look at the evidence from modern psychiatry, people, people with substance use problems and other addictive behaviors, they recover at enormous rates. I'm sure you talk about that all the time on this podcast, but there really is tremendous promise. It can just be like a long, hard road sometimes. So, Carl, were there any surprises for you when you were doing this research? 
Yeah, there are tons. I mean, one was um, this group called the Washingtonians, which I think some really people who are like really into 12 step history sometimes know about the Washingtonians, but otherwise they're almost totally overlooked. But in, in roughly the 1840s, there was this massive movement of people with alcohol problems primarily, but then also other like friends and family members who just banded together and created these huge mutual help networks, a lot like AA today. But it was way before AA, it was almost 100 years exactly. And there was no thread that I could find that connected the two, aside from being situated in, let's say, like the broader tradition of you know, American uh, Judeo-Christian thinking and mutual help. Uh, so the Washingtonians were, were this group of actually craftsmen in Baltimore who got sick of temperance advocates because the temperance preachers were always like a bit like haughty and kind of like patriarchal. They were always like talking down to people and saying, you got to pull yourself together and stop sinning. And so they they came together and they just independently created this meeting structure where they they just took turns sharing their own stories and kept the focus on themselves. And then they they ended the meeting with a shared abstinence pledge and a pledge to go out and find some other men. It was initially men, but then it expanded to women. It was remarkable for you know mid-19th century. And then it expanded even beyond that to these sort of like we would call like sober fun activities today. So they would have balls with no alcohol and parades and dances and parties and all the rest. And uh, it was huge. I mean, it, at one point, they counted like 10% of certain major cities as members because you didn't have to have an addiction problem. You could also be like a friend or just like an ally thinking about the title of allies and recovery. So Abraham Lincoln gave a speech about them, acknowledged them as this really great program. And it just shows, I mean, the independence of it actually is the really powerful thing because it shows how at different points in it, there are actually comparisons from indigenous American communities, multiple different Native American communities also had mutual help meetings, but it shows the power of people banding together in community and the, the necessity often of finding support, finding guidance, finding mentorship, and also just like making new social ties, making friends and having other shoulders to lean on. And it's just inspiring. It's inspiring that it came so many times over and over and over again across different times and different cultures. And I, I believe it's your colleague, uh, John Kelly, who's at Harvard, another psychiatrist, who talks about the importance of, of inter-aid or support groups, mutual support. And it's up there with medical bio, biomedical treatments in psychiatry. So I'm wondering if we can pivot a little bit to the incredible importance of, of social connection and support in the recovery process, which you and I are both products of, and Kayla and Lori are intimately intertwined with as well, and to your specialization, which is psychiatric medicine. So I wonder if you can talk about this sort of revolution that you see in addiction medicine should be of interest to our families who are looking for what ways, scientific cutting edge ways to help with the treatment of their loved ones. Right. Okay. Yeah. So like squarely within the biological and research-based interventions. Yeah. Those are really important too. Uh, let me set the stage a little bit. I think in, when we're talking about medicine, aside from psychotherapy, for the longest time, it's only been medications. It's only been, say, pills or tablets that you could pick up from a pharmacy. 
And there were different kinds. You know, ant abuse was pretty interesting. A few decades ago, a lot of people thought ant abuse was a miracle cure. And that, and for people who don't know, ant abuse is a pill that when, when the person takes it regularly, if they have alcohol, then it produces this really powerful reaction, almost like an allergic reaction. And some people use it. Usually it's better used in community and not in isolation is what the research shows. But the point is that we've had pills for a while, but not a lot of other uh, methods. Uh, modalities is the jargon word sometimes. What are different ways of getting at medical treatment? And so you just mentioned a couple of them. Vaccination would be a different kind of modality. Uh, there's uh, new active studies where people are investigating a, a vaccination against opioids. And you know, presumably this would only be for people who are really, really struggling because what it would do is it would create antibodies that glom on to opioids in the bloodstream and neutralize them. So that means that if somebody, you know, God forbid, if they were walking down the street, they got hit by a car and broke their leg, they went to the emergency room, they also couldn't get opioids for pain relief. So it's a, it's a pretty significant intervention if it ever gets developed. I'm actually going to be on a Harvard conference about the sort of social and ethical challenges of opioid vaccines, but that's not ready for prime time. They don't have them out yet. There are other things that people are doing and so they, they include brain stimulation, which is a broad term, meaning non-invasive or even invasive methods of directly altering brain function. The non-invasive ones basically just use a powerful magnet to stimulate certain areas of the brain. None of that is FDA approved, but because it is FDA approved for other conditions like depression, there are many clinics that are doing it. Uh, I did some of this research when I was in medical school and the main form is transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS. And some people really swear by it. I mean, what we found, depression is probably the best comparison is that um, that kind of magnetic stimulation, the real challenge is, can you make the effect last? So for depression, it works pretty well for depression actually, but you have to go in every single day, five days a week for weeks at a time. And then once somebody has a resolution in depression, the question is like, how long will it stick around? And so it's probably like a lot of other things in psychiatry is probably best paired with other things like community engagement groups and individual therapy when it's appropriate, so forth and so on. Can I just ask you to say a little more about that last part? Because I think what's happening from the out here in the trenches is we're, we're getting a lot of MAT, medication assisted treatment messages which is super important in this period of the kinds of drugs that have tainted the drug supply, the fentanyls and the carfentanyls, which have made everything so dangerous. So as allies in recovery seldom does, but we promote the use of medication-assisted treatment for opioids and other drugs as a public health concern. And so, but oftentimes beyond that, the social gets very little traction and it's not so promoted by the medication assisted treatment modality, if you will, or system in this country. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of the social with the mat so that we can we can understand that it's not a standalone, which two nights ago, a Democratic uh, senator from Maryland well intentioned the whole conversation to the degree that it was about treatment had to do just with Matt as though that's the only thing in the arsenal and and that there isn't this whole other world out there that we would argue includes the family so that you would go from from understanding the brain chemistry and, and the drugs and electronic electric systems use 
some of what Kayla does is also very exciting around trauma and understanding the, the social and the spiritual connection that we, we all need. Absolutely. I'm happy to go do that. That's always my tendency is to go very wide, go very lateral, very big picture. I can tell. And I appreciate that so much. I want you to do it for us some more because totally. if you haven't looked at this book, the urge is really, it really is. It spans history. It is smart. It is cutting edge and it's science. And, and frankly, I really am serious. You have moved us to a place hopefully where we understand this, the fuller picture and therefore can start putting uh, profit and loss evaluation metrics to the whole picture in a, in a finer way than we seem to be able to right now. It's very kind of you to say, I really appreciate it. So let me go even wider than what you said, because I, I say at the end of the book, actually, that there's so many things that we could be doing now that would save lives. And I think anybody working in the field or who's had engagement with the field knows that. There are ways that we could be expanding treatment, be delivering treatment better, be making access easier, breaking down stigma, all that stuff. And medications for opioid use disorder, like methadone and buprenorphine and long-term naltrexone are definitely part of that. And if policy leaders got their wish list tomorrow. They could wave a magic wand and then all of a sudden we got everything we wanted and the, the, all that stuff was like fully funded and there weren't any stupid pre-authorizations and you got the coverage and all the providers could prescribe it and we didn't have these sort of crazy onerous regulatory things that keep doctors from actually prescribing the medications. Even if we did all that, we would still have a big problem. We would still have a big problem because there would still be deep internalized stigma and shame there would still be a lot of providers who would still have stigma around even prescribing the medication. We have some research that even among doctors who have gone through the extra step of being able to prescribe those medications like methadone and buprenorphine, a lot of them don't do it. And some of that has to do with what they report in a study to say, like, I, I don't particularly want to work with those types of clients. And that's uh, medical providers. What we really need, I think, is a change in consciousness and also the top-down policy stuff. And the change in consciousness has to be looking at all the ways that uh, stigma is, and also just oppression is present throughout all stages of not just healthcare, but also community support and all the rest. And that means people coming forward and sharing their stories. That means having conversations. That means coming together for mutual help. Uh, that means engaging in sort of community and group-based supports like you guys are doing with the uh, allies in recovery. I think all of that stuff is just is crucial, crucial, crucial for people to really change the way they think about addiction in addition to those medications. So I didn't even really answer your question, which was about like prescribing medications by themselves versus social support. I'm happy to talk about that too, if you want to talk about that. Well, one of the things I just want to say, and I feel slightly tortured by the Washingtonians because I feel like there's an answer in that because it's a cultural shift and that there's a community based on not using, having fun, based on being together that has nothing to do with drugs and alcohol. And that's what's missing. So 
you know, as a clinician, I watch people get clean all the time and they, it feels like they go into an abyss, yes. you know, they want to hang out with their friends and they're isolated. And so, and it used to be that, that if you were involved in the 12 steps, which is not for everybody, there was social and cultural events that would happen so that you had this full life based on not using. But I really believe that until we have that cultural shift, it's very hard to keep people clean and sober because they're going they're they're isolated it's on you know you lose the social support unless you're going to 12-step meetings which if that's not for you you're alone and so that's i feel like when you said this about the washingtonians which felt like a, this bigger group this larger social group that even if they didn't have a problem they were socializing without alcohol and drugs so there's a holding group for people so that they get to be part of something. That just sounds magnificent to me. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great? You know, I think there's a little more attention to that. There are some sober bars that only serve mocktails. And I think there's more of an appreciation of all the different varieties of recovery too. You know, one of the good things about zoom is that like I've gotten a lot out of 12 step recovery. I love 12 step recovery. And you know, for some people, their home winds up being in something like recovery Dharma or smart recovery or something, or, or just like some random standalone group that they find even just within, you know, my real home is the Buddhist recovery network. And even within that, there's so many different groups. I couldn't even name them all. One is basically centered in Colorado. And then another one is like most prevalent in Washington state, because it's really just about human beings getting together and connecting. But part of that, and part of what I bring up in the book too, is, um, there are a lot of powerful forces arrayed against us to get in the way of what you're talking about, Kayla. They're, the alcohol industry is really, really powerful now, and it's more powerful than it's ever been in certain ways. And there's, there's a lot of active lobbying to undercut efforts to do that and to, there are, there's a lot of powerful forces arrayed to essentially deregulate alcohol and one of the most striking examples in the book is that the, this international consortium of alcohol industry funded people basically wrote the alcohol policies for four countries in South Africa, uh, all in sub-Saharan Africa. And um, they basically got away with it. I mean, it was passed into law. It was, it was discovered later, but nothing really happened about it. Here's an analogy that might be like a little bit of a reach, but it, people are more aware of the harms and the, the benefits and the costs of social media. And like it's come, especially with the Facebook revelations that like it really makes you sad in the end. <laughs> There's no way around it. Like at the bottom line is that social media makes you sad, pushing to compare and despair mode. I think there's something about that recognition of like the broader forces that I think can help give people more of a sense of agency and power, really. Just like if you, if you recognize, oh, there's a lot of cultural forces conspiring against me to make me want to drink, then that can kind of help to find these places where we get together and have more healthy ways of socializing. I love the idea too. There's a, a sober curious movement that I've been watching that I think got its start in England. And, you know, there's some counter forces culturally that hopefully will, will make us a little more aware going forward. I love the idea of social networks, social sober curious, the idea of any group, any random group being your group, the imperative of that connection, the imperative of having people broadly out from that group understand what you're going through. And the piece that would be missing for us in your book is the power of the family. 
and the work that we do at Allies in Recovery, which trains up, empowers that family to understand what they're seeing in their loved one, understand how to respond, understand if there's something they can do or if they shouldn't step in. So there's a, a gazillion questions and a lot of it is fear driven. And it's the fourth rail, I believe, to solving, really resolving and understanding the recovery and the process and the need. And the if we don't have it in our families, what good is it if it's out there three streets beyond. I, we really need to, to do a better job of, of training our families. We get excellent outcomes. We support people better in treatment than the treaters. I mean, right now we have families all over this country who have their loved ones in their basement and we're helping them through because there is no treatment right now. So just wanted to spend a minute on that and perhaps you have something you could add to that, Carl. Sure. Just to say that it's a it's one of those really common themes that when the family system is having problems, then everyone feels it. And kind of an extreme example, one family I profile is William Burroughs and his son, who in the mid-century both went to the same addiction treatment facility. But then there are also these lovely examples too, like Benjamin Rush, who is one of the founding fathers of the U.S. and one of the first main psychiatrists in the country, uh, had a son who had mental health problems. He would have been called dual diagnosis today. He had both drinking problems and mental health problems. And they basically put him on a barge from Louisiana all the way up to Philadelphia where Benjamin Rush was practicing. And uh, I've got a brief portion in the book where we talk about that, where he he gets off the boat and Benjamin Rush, the professor, is, is like taking care of his long nails in his room and for three days is like grooming him up before he gets to treatment and trying to take care of him. So it's something that families have struggled with for so long. But I think it's a, it's a relatively recent phenomenon that we've had these sorts of networks where families can learn from each other. And uh, it's not just, again, it's not just 12-step, but like 12-step was a big part of that in terms of like Lois Wilson's activity in the early days of the fellowship. And then uh, the way that, and then also Betty Ford. And there, there are a lot of interesting stories from the last several decades about how the family became more of a focus necessarily. It's such an appropriate focus, but I think that's the thing that's been missed for too long because modern medicine and medicine in general can probably in general narrow our, uh, our focus too much to the individual and ignore the family system. Thank you. You spoke earlier too about, um, you started talking about stigma. And I think that families get a double whammy when it comes to stigma, because I think that they experience their own sense of stigma from the community. They also experience it vicariously. I, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but for their loved one. And I also think that they internalize stigma out of fear and worry and angst and don't know what to do with it. I think that the biggest problem with stigma is that we punish out of stigma, that that's, that's the problem. And I think that family members do the same thing. We tend to think that punishing is the way out. I don't think that families are thinking I need to punish I think it's just a response to this fear and this anxiety and we end up punishing and it has a lot to do with the stigma because that's our view. This is the only way that we can get our loved ones to 
behave or do a particular thing that we want them to do. Well, and it also involves shame and blame. To me, stigma is about shame and blame. That's really how I see it more than anything else. And if you're internalizing shame and blame, it, that's, how, that's where you're coming from. And I think a lot of families feel that it's their fault, you know, especially parents. They feel like it's their fault and responsibility that their loved one is behaving this way or has this issue. And so they're already coming from that place of shame and blame. And then the punishment comes from that place. And it's not helpful. I, rem- I, I lived in the days where the addiction communities had like, if you did something wrong, you would be wearing, you were shamed and you wore cans around your neck and had signs that said that you were, you know, an idiot or whatever it was saying. And that's how they tried to stop it. They tried to break people down as opposed to build people up. And I think one of the things that we're starting to see is that people are already feeling like they need to be built up, not broken down. You don't break people down to change. You need to build them up to help them change. Um, and that's a massive shift, at least from when I began, which was in the 80s. I couldn't agree more. That's such an important shift. And in a way, that that shift or those problems like wearing a sign around your neck or some people would have to wear a diaper, or dig their own grave to kind of like drive home the notion that you're you're putting yourself in an early grave because of your substance use. Some of that came from the retreat of my profession, the medical profession from treating people with addiction because especially in the 1920s, but then through the whole rest of the century, the medical profession kind of dropped the ball and said like addiction is a vice. It's not a disease. And it wasn't like that. I mean, back in the 19th century, the medical profession actually did a better job of treating people with addiction. So I agree. It's really useful to think about the different kinds of stigma. And then one one kind of stigma that I would add to that really good list is structural stigma. So even totally well-meaning people can wind up in an institution that is replicating shame and blame and stigmatized practices, maybe because there's nothing else. Maybe because, you know, you, why is it that we have to go down the street to like a totally separate clinic to get treatment for addiction? And it's not in general mental health care, let alone general medicine. That's structural stigma. Even if the individual providers there are all nice, well-meaning people who are trying to do their best. And you, you alluded to this earlier when you started talking about providers being able to, you know, have gone through the steps in order to provide Matt in their own practice, mm-hmm. but refusing to do so because they don't want to work with those people, right? They don't want those people to be in their office. Or they're scared of the DEA. Those medications get regulated in a totally different way. Yeah. Why are they Why are they treated like a totally separate thing? You know, there's, there's lots of medications that have costs and benefits. Well, you know what, Carl, Dr. Fisher, this was a fantastic interview and we really want to invite you back and have more discussions. I'm heading out to buy your book um, as soon as we're done with this interview. I can't wait to read it. It's called The Urge and it's by Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. And Kayla, I'm hoping you can kind of summarize what we discussed today. No, I can do it. I am basically the the moral of the story. It's not the moral because this is not about moral. But but what we've been talking about is that addiction is much more common than we assume. And if you look at it historically, all of us, I would say, 
probably most of the people on the planet are dealing with some form of addiction. It's a spectrum. And so I think we need to look at addiction really differently, that it's much more common. I think it's very clear from what you're saying, Carl, is that that the possibilities for people to get better are much higher than we assume. It's just that we have to invest in the longer process and that how we think about addiction and how complex it is personally, politically, socially, and medically is really much more important in in terms of framing this so that we see it as a complex issue and not simplistic. So it changes the way that we deal with it. And also there are ways that um, things are changing. And and the one thing that I want to say that I didn't even think about before is that if we could start thinking about this as a more cultural societal issue and that we need to have more opportunity to have a healthy life that doesn't involve alcohol and drugs for all of us, whether people are dealing with addiction or not, it will allow people to stay clean and sober or at least be healthier because there's more options once they do start working on these issues as opposed to being pigeonholed. And once you get clean and sober, there's no place to go um, or you become isolated. That makes absolutely no sense. And so I feel like the message to families is that if we could start working on broadening enjoyment that doesn't involve alcohol and drugs, we're actually making a better culture for people to be able to do this kind of work on themselves. Thank you so much. This was so interesting. I loved it. Thank you. That was such a nice summary. Well, thank you, everybody. And uh, we will be back next week. Thanks so much for having me. I'm getting the book. I have to run so I could go buy the book. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.